Welcome to Solomon's Knot, finding truth and wisdom in an information age. Today we have a special guest, a doctorate level professor in apologetics and theology, as well as one of my early mentors in campus ministry and evangelism. He is an experienced campus minister with an understanding in both modern and postmodern cultures, as well as how to minister cross-generationally to make an impact on college campuses in this generation and the ones to come. So let's welcome our guest. Well, Jason, uh, I'm glad to be able to do this with you. I've known you for nigh two years mm-hmm. and know of your interest in reaching students and young people for Christ and mm-hmm. to been with you uh, in class uh, at our, in our apologetics for cross-cultural engagement class uh, for Atlanta University, Grace College of Divinity. And uh, you were one of my most excellent students uh, you actually, just this morning, I uploaded the uh, actual final apologetic grid that you completed nice. after all your readings. I <laughs> uploaded it for my class this year. Nice. For my I graduate students and my undergraduate students. That's good. So I'm re- real proud of you, real Thank proud you. of what you did then, and proud of what you're doing now. Yeah. And, uh, so I have a deep appreciation for student ministry. And so just a little bit about myself, as you asked, uh, if you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 17, in verse 29, uh, the shepherd boy David is um, comes to the Valley of Elah, and there is his brother Eliab, who reproves David for leaving the sheep, even though he did so in obedience to his father, and uh, ends up chiding David. Uh, Whenever David hears of the chidings of Goliath and Eliab rebukes David for even being there to hear it, David's reply was, is there not a cause? I like the King James translation of that. Is there not a cause? And for me, there is. It's the campus cause. The campus cause has been the cause that has motivated me since uh, the day that I got born again, uh, back in 1973. Uh, I was raised Catholic. My mom was Catholic. My dad was Baptist. I grew up Catholic. So I had a little bit of both um, and always knew there was something more than the Catholics told me. And and finally, at 17, going to a Southern Baptist church, a girl took me to, and I ended up hearing the preacher preach on New Year's resolutions. And uh, he said, what you need, January 7th, 1973, he said, what you need is not a New Year's resolution. What you need is a New Year's revolution where the revolutionary person of Jesus comes into your life mm-hmm. and you become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And the old things pass away and the new things come in. At 17 years old, uh, getting ready to go off to the University of Kentucky. I had a nature change in January and by August was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, where we were doing an outreach with Josh McDowell that year and got trained in evangelism. And uh, I got addicted to evangelism and never want to recover and uh, started leading people to the Lord that first year in college. And so that cause on the college campus is basically what sparked at the beginning of my walk with Jesus. I knew I was called into ministry three months after I got saved and then went to graduated, went to Asbury Seminary and then went and planted my first campus church at 24 at Michigan State University. Have been planting churches on college campuses ever since and actually wrote my dissertation for my doctoral degree 
on planting churches on college campuses, which you know, Jason, because you've read it. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I have heard your story before, but uh, um, so it, there's some new details, you know, obviously, um, and I heard a a young campus minister talk about this, that it seems like every every uh, every guy that tends to get into a campus ministry, uh, it's usually because of a girl. So I thought it was interesting how uh, someone brought you to church and that opened up a lot of doors. So uh, yeah, uh, so I did read your dissertation, a lot of really good notes. I think I had like, uh, not as much as my grid, but I had about uh, four pages of notes, a lot of axioms, uh, a lot of hard lessons learned, I'm sure in between. Um, but yeah, actually, believe it or not, I do those grids uh, yeah, for, for those listening. Uh, those are basically outlines on crack. Uh, they are extensive, but I'm, I'm very thankful for them today. I'm actually going to be using one of those today uh, to minister to a young man um, at a college uh, who he, he, he's searching. He's searching. So I definitely appreciate that. It's a couple things, uh, a couple things that stuck out and... For the context of campus ministry and reaching uh, the lost, could you kind of unpack a little bit about the culture that you see today and maybe from how it was when you got into ministry, any similarities, any differences? Well, as a 40-year veteran, I've been on the campus for four decades <laughs> and uh, seen a lot of changes uh, overall. Whenever I was in the 1973, when I started college and graduated in 79, I crammed my four-year coursework into six years. And uh, when I finished my college degree and did some seminary work, I was in the uh, arena where I could go out in that particular time, stand up on a college campus, and I would uh, do my Billy Graham impersonation about God uh, sending forth the angels and two-thirds of the angels fell. But mm -hmm. one-third of the angels stayed mm -hmm. faithful. Or mm -hmm. one-third of the angels fell. That means mm -hmm. they're out number two to one. So I would yeah, you do, get up. Yeah, you do pretty good. You do Billy pretty good. <laughs> do, That's cool. I would do my Billy Graham and everybody would yeah. laugh and come around. And I said, so I'm here to declare that uh, Nietzsche said that God is dead, but I am here mm. to declare that God mm. is dad. And I would preach on mm. the fatherhood of God. And uh, you could do declaration on the college campuses at the uh, University of Colorado and the pit out there. I would preach God mm. is dead or God is dad and not not that God is dead. So I would go on mm. through the years in the 80s and go to Michigan State University and every mm. Wednesday weather committee and I'd be out on campus preaching mm. the gospel. It raised up mm. a, a campus staff of 25 campus workers who would be out working the crowd while I mm. had 100, 150 students gathered around, sometimes 200. And I would mm. preach with declaration. Mm. Now, modernists love declaration. Uh, they like someone who can say it loud, long, and strong. And during that modernistic era on the college campus, I was able to make those declarations and we saw mm. thousands of people impacted with the gospel at Michigan State, leading several thousand to the Lord over the eight, eight nine years that I was there, actually 12 years. And mm -hmm. so I ended up uh, watching as things began to change in the 1990s. Uh, we basically had a cultural change on the college campus. We ended up with postmodernism as the prevailing philosophy on college campuses in 2006. Mm. So that doesn't mean that there weren't some modernists on the college campus. There were, but the prevailing campus worldview became postmodernism. And 
postmodernists essentially disdain any meta narrative, particularly God's meta narrative, or any authoritative mm-hmm. meta narrative. And in fact, uh, postmodernists would be of the persuasion that there is no one truth; it's just many truths. Mm-hmm. And my truth is as good as your truth. And let's talk about truth, and maybe we can find something that we can agree on, and then that'll be our. Mm-hmm. And so they basically create the truth through dialogue. That basic contention has been on the college campus, and therefore, I can't stand up anymore on the college campus and make declarations of what is the absolute truth. It does make truth very subjective rather than, Mm. quote, objective. Mm. Uh, In truth, all truth is subjective, but if the Holy Spirit gets involved in the subjectivity, Mm. then we're led to a place of absolutism. And the best apologetic for the postmodern is an encounter with the Holy Spirit and signs, wonders, and miracles. Yeah, the Apostle Paul, you you mentioned, is a pretty interesting figure because he was someone that also we see go up to the, the Areopagus, Athens, to the philosophical elites of their time. They had a statue of the unknown God, and and Paul essentially made the case that I'm, I can tell you who that God is. I'm curious if we're seeing that nowadays where we're, we're presenting what historically used to be understood as the monotheistic, or at least maybe the triune nature of God, those are no longer assumed in the culture. Even just what you had described in back in apologetics class was at the presuppositional level, at the root level, there is a theistic worldview. Uh, do you believe that that is actually what we're seeing in the culture that people do no, no longer have that, or is that more common and we just we just need to make the case for Christ? Well, uh, there's two basic uh, categories of apologetics, uh, evidentialism and the second one, presuppositionalism. Uh, now, evidentialism is what most apologists will use to convince someone of the existence of God. Dr. Rice Brooks does that in his book, God's Not Dead, takes Mm -hmm. an evidential approach and presents on campus Mm -hmm. the evidence for God in an age of uncertainty. And we Mm -hmm. have a number of people that come out for that. Mm -hmm. At Michigan State, we had a 300-seat auditorium, had 400 show up. The Mm -hmm. following fall had a 600-seat auditorium, 100 people. 50 people show up. And so there are those that were raised in church that have modernism and believe that there is an absolute truth. Mm -hmm. There are others that were not raised in church, but suspect that there might be an absolute truth, but are not certain. And there are those who were raised in church and have presuppositionalism and have postmodernism as their uh, native worldview, but are not convinced that there's any one truth. But they'll come to a seminar like that on evidentialism. And evidentialism is effective in breaking down mental hurdles for people in order to consider the potentiality of the existence of God. I think there's a real good place for evidentialism and John Frame in his book, Apologetic, A Justification of Belief, does a good job in handling evidentialism without excluding presuppositionalism. Presuppositionalism basically is the approach that I think is effective with most thoroughgoing postmodernists that have postmodernism as their native culture. Presuppositionalism basically says, let's dust off the assumptions that you have for what you say. Mm. And so in a evangelistic dialogue, I would say, and so why do you believe that? Mm. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And why do you believe that? 
And when we get down to a place where they have no more answers to why, we have now discovered their assumption that is called a presupposition. A presupposition is an assumption under which there is no necessary evidence for, it's just accepted for what it is. And you reason from that place and you build assumptions one on top of the other till you get to your present belief system. Mm. Now, these are assumptions that I accept without evidence that can be proved to you. Mm. However, for me, my encounters with the Holy Spirit and His work in my life have brought me to a place where I have what I consider to be sufficient evidence for me to accept these assumptions. So these are my presuppositions that I have come to by way of conviction from the Holy Spirit. And every person, Jesus said of Peter, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father revealed it. Every person that becomes a part of Jesus' church has to have a revelation from the Father of the Son by the Spirit. And when they have that revelation, they have now conviction, what the Bible calls faith, is a conviction of things not seen. And accordingly, that faith is what brings them into the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus builds his church on that foundation of faith. It wasn't Peter the pebble. It was the rock of revelation that Jesus built his church church on. Mm -hmm. And so we have to get that postmodernist to the place where they have an encounter with the Holy Spirit that Mm -hmm. produces internal evidence Mm -hmm. for their presuppositions. Yes, it's subjective, but the Holy Spirit doesn't mind becoming subjective and giving them that subjective evidence for their presuppositions so that they can come to faith in Christ. Presuppositionalism is the approach that I use with a thoroughgoing postmodernist. If someone has modernism as their native culture, if they were raised in a church, maybe they have modernism as their native culture, I will use evidential apologetic. But my primary go-to is presuppositionalism for the postmodern. Yeah, that's really good. Um, yeah, just in, in summary, so from the standpoint of witnessing, using apologetics as a tool, it is the word of God that convicts the heart. As you've once told me on the campus, you know, you get to the head to get to the heart. Basically, to some, maybe more on this side of the world, in the Western side of the world, or at least from the rational point of view, that there is reasoned arguments, there's there's evidence, there are prophecies, things that uh, we can measure the fact that there's a nation of Israel that's still there, that uh, some may argue shouldn't be there, but it's the people, and that's something we can tangibly see and say, wow, like that can be measured against what someone had foretold with incredible precision, including the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whereas maybe to others, and not to, you know, put it on another part of the world, but uh, where experience or subjectivity or what you feel, which seems to be more what the culture and this generation coming up expresses, is that they need to come into an encounter. They need to know that what they're being told matches with what they're experiencing or what they're feeling. And what you're saying is that that's actually a good thing, but it sounds like irregardless, what is experienced and what is actually observed has to come up against 
a standard of truth. And this is where I think the conversation isn't really being told completely in the culture. It seems to be, well, your truth can be whatever you want it to be as long as it doesn't hurt your neighbor. But that doesn't make sense because what if my truth actually causes harm to somebody else? Where's the consequence and how do we actually draw the line? So what would you say in response to that? Well, um, postmodernism is is existentialism on steroids. (laughs) That's good. That's good. So essentially, unless a postmodernist has an encounter or an experience, they don't necessarily consider something to be truth. If it's your experience, it may be truth for you, but it's Mm -hmm. not my experience, so it's not true for me. As Paul Copan's book says, true for you, not for me, Mm -hmm. a book you might want to read. We'll we'll put in the show notes. (laughs) But the thing, thing, uh, Jason, is that um, for for the early church in Acts 15, the apostles and elders came together and James stood up and said, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now, hmm. they had whole of the Hebrew Bible to reason from. They had the early church apostles and those that had been with Jesus. And in Acts 15, they had years of uh, development in the church and theology and Paul with under Gamaliel and getting saved. And yet, they still relied on the witness of the Holy Spirit Mm. to lead them into all truth. Mm. It was the witness of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the apostles and the elders. Mm. It was something beyond feeling. It was subjective witness to the objective truth of Scripture. Mm. And that's what we have to get to. The early church relied upon the witness of the Holy Spirit. When I'm doing evangelism with someone out on the campus, I have to rely upon the witness of the Holy Spirit inside of them Mm -hmm. as to what is truth, because there's only one source of truth, and that is the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So bringing them into an encounter with Jesus is bringing them into an encounter with the truth. The truth is not a fact to be learned or reasoned to. Mm. The truth mm. is a person to be known. His name is Jesus. Yes. And bringing that person into an encounter with the Jesus who is the truth, who said, I am the way, the mm. truth, and the life. Yeah. That's what will convince the postmodern. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And I was just going to read this. This is Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Pretty much the Gospel of John uh, really touches on, you know, the spirit, the life, truth, uh, all those themes that we see, and it's centered on the person of Jesus. And so I guess to someone that's not what we would say in the faith is regenerate, someone that hasn't been born again, who's seen things for the first time through the eyes of the spirit, or at least have been enlightened, not to borrow from language uh, of other beliefs or faiths, because essentially you are coming against truth that has power, but it's it's not just in the natural. And I think that that is something, how do we explain that to people so that they have a better idea that when we're approaching people, it's not just by words, but it's by the spirit empowering us through love, through good deeds, and also through just that common experience. 
Well, I'm going to highlight what you said something earlier. Sure. You speak to the head long enough to get to the heart. Right. You don't right. continually speak to the head because conversion is not in the head. Right. Uh, maybe conversion of thought, mm -hmm. but not conversion of heart. That's good. You've got to be able to speak to the heart, get down to the presuppositional level, and bring people into an encounter with the person of Jesus. And once their spirit has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, John, 7, John 14, verse 16 and 17, Jesus says to his disciples who he'd been walking with for three years, he says, the Holy Spirit who is with you will be in you. Mm. Well, long before the Holy Spirit is in someone, the Holy Spirit is with them on the outside. The Holy Spirit communicating with their spirit, giving them understanding, truth, insight, conviction. We've got to rely upon the Holy Spirit to convince the heart. For with the heart, man believes, Romans 10, 9, 10 says. We've got to cooperate with the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can use the words of Scripture, use our testimony, use our, our apologetic to be able to reach into the heart to bring them into an encounter with the Holy Spirit. This past uh, Saturday afternoon, I preached uh, a 10-minute sermon at a wedding. And laid out the nature change that can happen by the Holy Spirit and led people in a prayer. And in 10 minutes, this one girl from Chicago had an encounter with Jesus standing up as a bridesmaid mm. because she encountered the presence mm. of the Holy Spirit at work in her heart, even regenerating as she prayed the prayer of salvation. Mm. So that's something that if you can bring people, it can be in a two-minute testimony, in a 10-minute gospel mm. presentation, in a two-hour gospel presentation. Mm. You can lead people into an encounter with the Holy Spirit. That's mm. what makes it real for the postmodern. Mm. It is existential. Yeah. Is it experiential? Mm. It's not feelings. It's beyond feelings. It's encounter. Mm. And that may result in feelings or not, mm. but encounter spirit-to-spirit -spirit encounter. Holy Spirit can't encounter with their spirit produces conviction, produces being born of the spirit and regenerated. That which is mm -hmm. born of the spirit of God is the spirit of the man. We have to get beyond the mental mm -hmm. to the spiritual, mm -hmm. which is in the heart. For with the heart, man believes and yeah. the Holy Spirit engages there. Yeah, that's good. So we're going to take a break real quick. And I want to talk to you a minute about some of the amazing opportunities we have through forecampus.org to train future evangelists and people who wanting to reach out to college campuses in your nearby area. If you haven't already gone to our website, you can go to forecampus.org slash training to hear from trained evangelists and campus ministers in diverse fields. Whether you're in a local church or you want to reach people in your nearby campus, we want to partner in your journey by equipping you with biblical knowledge, relevant experience, and practical tools to take out into the modern mission field. Now, let's get back to our speaker. You had mentioned uh, previously uh, in your sermons and dissertations that the the emphasis on the relationship between the campus minister and uh, those that they come into contact with. Can you explain uh, whether in your experience or just looking at some of the trends or what is effective in terms of reaching people, knowing that we're in this kind of post-COVID timeframe and what, what advice would you give to people in that space with all the you know digital transformation, the 
online tools available? What have you seen that's effective? Big question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, first of all, there's so much out there on the internet that is available that uh, trying to get the attention uh, of a student is difficult right now for them to mm. give time to any particular thing. Mm. Uh, in honesty, I think that the relationship with the internet has become addicting to mm. young people on the college campus where they can't get away from it. And yet it comes up short. It leaves them still feeling deficient mm. in understanding, even though they can listen to this podcast and that blog and et cetera and so on, that there's a lack of authenticity, no matter how great the preacher was through the internet, the sermon was, et cetera, how real he was, yet there's still something of a deficit because they're not connected with that person. Mm. And so going onto a campus, engaging someone where you share your life, your testimony, the, the father decided that it was so important that the word become flesh, that he sent his own son from heaven to incarnate the truth. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we'll ever get away from the importance of incarnation or truth. So you going to the campus and being a living presence of the truth of who Jesus is, being authentic, talking about your journey mm -hmm. instead of one event, it was a process for you. This generation in my dissertation, I talk about the difference between modernism and postmodernism. Mm -hmm. And uh, the postmodernists are focused. Uh, I have two columns, and one of them is where postmoderns are focused on journey, mm -hmm. whereas uh, modernists are focused on destiny. So, destiny is not as important to postmodernists, but mm -hmm. the journey, because the journey is what makes you, gives you meaning. So, mm -hmm. if you can go on the campus and start sharing your journey, Journey. Your testimony is your bridge into their heart. If you can develop a two-minute testimony, a five-minute testimony, a 10-minute testimony, as mm. you engage with people, you'll be able to share your testimony because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, mm. uh, Revelation 19. And so that when you give your testimony, it's like prophesying to someone, as it says in 1 Corinthians 14, it says that, will they not say that God is surely among you mm. when you prophesy? Well, when mm. you give your testimony, they will say, this person surely has had an encounter with God. Very much so may touch your encounter with God and maybe even enter into your encounter with God. So preparing your testimony is key to going out on a college campus. Mm. That's one thing I would say. That's good. Yeah, there's so much to, to cover there. We are kind of at that point where we're going to start wrapping up the show. Definitely need to have you back to kind of drill down on a couple of these key points, especially modernism, postmodernist thoughts. I've even heard culturally that we're now in like the post-truth era, but that's a whole different thing to, to unpack. I am curious and um, uh, before, you know, I usually give this time for a person I interviewed to, uh, you know, recommend resources and things. I did, I did catch something in the, uh, the 500 plus page dissertation. Um, but, uh, you were on a college campus and I think it was, uh, USC and mm -hmm. California. And you were yes. talking about, and it may have been there, or may have been in Michigan. I'm not sure which one, but you you had partnered with campus ministers that you planted, and they basically started what was called the warehouse, and then you made people warehouse managers. Can you can you just tell me about that? Because I thought that was like the coolest thing, like organic thing that I'd heard of. Well, I wrote my dissertation on parallel church planting, mm -hmm. where a nearby community church which is likely modernistic, sends a church planting team down to a nearby college campus to plant a contextualized campus church mm -hmm. that is postmodern and will scratch the itch of the postmodern on the college campus. 
that came out of, I was the founding dean of the Graduate School of Campus Ministry. Dr. Cheon asked me if I would take one of his evangelists, Jason Mall, into my program. And after discipling him for six months, in the last three months, I sent him to UCLA to uh, do his internship. And there mm -hmm. he ended up starting a campus revival where people would mm -hmm. come off of crutches out on the campus and nine mm -hmm. people in the Filipino fraternity would get saved. And so he sent Jason and within two years, there were eight congregations, micro churches, I call them. Mm -hmm. And we had people in Chase Church discipling people in our micro church. One second year PhD student in electro electrical engineering from Shanghai was going to go back and be a professor. And when he, we led him to the Lord, we got him connected in Chase Church, a world-renowned electrical engineer that was Chinese. And, and this couple mm -hmm. took this newly converted Chinese student and his wife in, under their arm and began to to not only mentor them, but mm -hmm. teach them about how they could be effective in the kingdom of God. We had parallel church planting resulted in cross-generational transfer and spiritual sons and daughters. That was the warehouse, right? USC. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's interesting uh, how you mentioned it's a PhD level engineer student and an MBA. So these are, these are smart people that are coming into the revelation and truth of Jesus. And, you know, because I, I think that there's a stigma that that like people that believe in Jesus and, you know, Bill Maher and all the other people in the culture were picking on Christians basically for being ignorant or, you know, gullible. And yet these are intelligent people that are coming to these conclusions on their own. And I just think that that's something of note that the Christian faith is very intellectual. You know, you look at guys like C.S. Lewis, most of the universities and seminaries that were founded by, you know, the church. And yet it seems like we're fighting for relevance in an area that we once championed. And so uh, maybe just as we kind of conclude this, you know, what encouragement or what about the church? What about families, people out there that are like, hey, my, my child's going to be in college pretty soon. Like, what are they going to experience when they get in there? This generation comes from a lot of brokenness. Mm. And so the triumphalism of the modernistic church will probably not register with them. Mm. But if spiritual mothers and fathers are willing to get down into the brokenness of the postmodern generation, then I think that that the postmoderns will find a great solace in mm. uh, spiritual moms and dads who will reach mm. up to them, reach down to them. Mm. I say reach up because they get underneath. Mm. And so those, this is a generation that's looking for mentoring, really looking for spiritual mothers and fathers. Yes. First John chapter two says, I write to you children. I write to you young men. I write to you fathers. Yeah. And the reason we don't have many children, spiritual children coming into young manhood is because we don't have fathers mm. reaching back to spiritual children and bringing them into young manhood mm. or bringing young men into fatherhood. Yeah. And so we need spiritual moms and dads in the church who can reach back into the brokenness and journey with them forward. Mm. Modernism is my native culture. It's mm. what's natural to me. I had to actually train myself to think <laughs> postmodern because it's not natural to me. But because I studied postmodernism, I was able to learn to be bicultural. So mm -hmm. when I'm sitting on on the plane and I'm talking to a young person and I'm discerning, do they have modernism as their native culture or postmodernism as their native mm. culture? Mm. And I know how to switch from modernism mm. to postmodernism. Mm. 
Now, the thing that I want to encourage campus ministers to do, I want to encourage spiritual moms and dads to do, is to train themselves in being bicultural. And in order to do that, you're going to have to read books on postmodernism. Nancy mm. Murphy has one called, called Postmodernity from mm. uh, Fuller Seminary. Mm. Uh, there's two kinds of postmodernism that are out there. One is continental postmodernism. Uh, others, like Nancy Murphy, talks about the Anglo-American postmodernity. Mm -hmm. which is a kind of postmodernity in which the Holy Spirit can get involved. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. training yourself in the right kind of postmodernism, being able to become bicultural because you understand it, will help you be able to relate to this coming generation, reach into their world and journey with them towards a truth that becomes existentially real through the mm -hmm. work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, just as a practical, you know, that could, that could be just a cup of coffee in neighbor, you know, I, I think that sometimes we can make this really complicated. You know, we see tons of examples in the scripture where Jesus interacted with disciples doing pretty common things. Yeah, definitely. If uh, people need some training and resources, we're um, ministry partners are putting together some training for free. Uh, everything on forcampus.org. Hack this ministry. You can literally take everything, all the resources. If you're interested in the the sources, podcasts, everything like the training itself, it's going to be uh, very. It's going to be done very professionally. And so uh, the idea is that we want to train the layperson, the mother, the students there, and give them you know a pretty decent, sufficient level of understanding understanding where they don't necessarily have to go to seminary. But by all means, uh, if that is the track, uh, we'll definitely make sure your information's on there and some of the courses and the books and resources you mentioned. Let me just mention that sure. it, this week, uh, they can still sign up for mm -hmm. a graduate level course or an undergraduate course. The undergraduate course begins July 5th through August 29th. Mm -hmm. The graduate level course will start this week at Mana University. Okay. They can sign up for the graduate level course, Contemporary Issues and Apologetics. And we'll be talking about existentialism, uh, evidentialism, mm -hmm. presuppositionalism, training them to think biculturally. Yes. That can be signed up for audit uh, that can be signed up this week only. Nice. And so nice. they would need to jump on in unless they're going to do it at an undergraduate level. And then on July 5th, we'll start with just Rice Brooks, three books through August nice. the 29th. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, man, there's so much more I wanted to talk about. Um, the whole reason this started, not just the four campus org or any of the other ministry outreaches I've done, and I don't think I've ever told you this, pretty much up until that season where I was taking your course, the very course you mentioned, and I actually had the opportunity, this is before COVID, to go on a college campus with you. I had never done raw evangelism like that. I was still very much in a student training mode. And this was doing stuff through the church, you know, going on outreaches and handing out invitations or just sharing my faith organically. But that was a time when we went out. It was like, I, I remember it to this day, we went out, we prayed beforehand, we went to a student and you shared the gospel and that changed everything for me. And I basically, oh, yeah, it, it changed him for sure. Uh, and what was interesting is just communicating that experience 
to even just the average churchgoer or Christian um, people in my small groups, it was the concept was so foreign, even to like most of my, you know, peers, and some of them actually knew the word, you know, fairly well. So now it's interesting now I've kind of shifted to like, I'm looking for people that want to take a step of faith without them necessarily having all of the things figured out. Like, I think that some of that, there's some training that you're going to, you should get beforehand. You should definitely be mature to a certain level in your faith. But I look in the, the gospels and, you know, Jesus is coming alongside these guys through the power of the Holy Spirit and they're preaching the gospel, preaching the word, you know, casting out demons. And I think we're, we're kind of losing something between the local church and the mission field. And maybe we'll, we'll unpack that another discussion. I'd love to have you come back and we could deep dive more into the practicals and, and what we can do to encourage maybe the church. Because uh, we kind of talked a lot about the campus minister. So yeah, Dr. Leo, I'd love to have you again to maybe talk about what the church can do uh, to well, kind church, of- yep. The church has become addicted to attractional evangelism. Mm. But there's a difference between attractional evangelism and missional evangelism. Missional evangelism is where you leave your spot and go to their spot. And what you and I did, we went out to their spot mm. and we did missional evangelism. We went out, engaged them in what Dr. Rice Brooks calls the God test, mm -hmm. the godtest.org. Yep. Yep. And we used the God test to start a conversation. We salt yep. it, S-A-L-T, start a conversation, ask questions on the God test, listen to their answers and tell <laughs> yeah. them your story and then God's story, Christ's story. Yep. And so we, we, I trained you in salt evangelism. Yep. Yep. And so that's what we call missional evangelism. Right. You can hand out tracts and invitations to come to yep. church, come to church, come to church. But 20% of those who go to a college campus have never been in a church. And even more than that, have not heard the gospel, even if they were in church. And yep. unless we do missional evangelism, they will not have the encounter with the Holy Spirit and the truth. And now you just told me you were out on the North Carolina State University campus yep, yep. and doing missional evangelism and may you multiply that. It's, yeah, it is, it has been definitely a new chapter of ministry. Um, I pretty much borrowed elements from the SALT method. Uh, I guess that's the official define it. But yeah, I, I go out, I engage with uh, students, I have a microphone and, and part of that is the listening piece. That's something Thing that has been really key uh, just coming out of the you know quarantine life uh, so if you see me or anyone uh, part of this ministry out in the college campus in the North Carolina area and you see a, you know I want to listen sure with some positive messaging as well as just authentic conversation open a space for you can really get at the heart of issues in the culture and see what Jesus does through that uh, so Dr. Leo thank you for your time how can people find out more about your ministry and get involved some of the things that you're doing whether in Michigan State or evangelism well they can email me at leolawson at gmail.com. The website that they can go to is for the Alliance of Campus Evangelists and Apologists. Mm -hmm. That would be campusevangelist.org or campusevangelist.com. Okay. There they can get resources as well. Those would be two places. I do have a YouTube channel, Dr. Leo Lawson, but I'm glad to work with anybody. I'm mm -hmm. a consultant and so mm -hmm. I'd be glad to work with churches that are interested in planting churches on college campuses mm -hmm. in parallel with their churches. And Great. that's one of the things I do. Great. Yeah. We'll make sure to put links to all of it. There's a lot of resources recommended. So yeah, thank you very much for your time and we uh, hope to have you again. Thanks for listening to another episode of Solomon's Knot. To say thank you for helping us launch this podcast, we want to give one listener a special gift for the Solomon's Podcast Show. Please reach out through Instagram or through email at forcampusorg at gmail.com. So we hope to hear from you again, and please make sure to subscribe on your major podcast platforms.